Uh, we're in, still in Joshua. Uh, we're going to talk about the blessing of obedience this morning. And uh, we're in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. Joshua 8, 30 through 35. I'm going to read it. Uh, we'll pray and get going. I think the text will be up here too if, if you want to follow along with me. So, beginning of verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence that's with us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, and that faithfulness includes your good commandments, Father, that you have given to us to obey, empowered by you. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hard hearts and our blind eyes and our deaf ears, Father. Lord, that we may know you better today, that we may see you, that we may hear you, that we may know that you are knocking on the doors of our hearts, Lord, that you are changing us and transforming us, Father. I pray that you would help us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into the truth, Lord, and that you would help me as a preacher this morning to be faithful to your word, Lord. We thank you and ask that you'd help us, Jesus, this morning. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we have to kind of set the stage here, and I want you to put yourself here where the Israelites are. They're gathered at a place called Shechem. They're located, Shechem is in a valley between two uh, mountain ranges. Mount Ebel is to the north, and Mount Gerizim stands to the south. And they're given specific instructions by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27 concerning the covenant ceremony that we just read about. And he told them that after they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan, where they are now, that they should go to this place, to Shechem. That they should build an altar, and that they should offer sacrifices, and that they should worship the Lord, and that they should read the law of Moses. And so Joshua sends half of the tribes to stand on Mount Ebal to the north, and they represented 
God's promised curse if they disobeyed God. I'm not sure how they got picked to be the ones representing the curse. Nevertheless, that's how it worked out. He takes the other six tribes and he sends them to Mount Gerizim to the south, and they represented God's promised blessing if they were to obey God's commandments. And so Joshua then constructs this altar for sacrifices on Mount Ebal, and then he sets up a separate pile of stones, and on that pile of stones they write the law of Moses on the stones, and he reads the commands of God to the Israelites. And when he read those blessings and those curses, the people would agree with each one of them and say, Amen, so be it. We agree with what you're saying. And so there was a very important object lesson here for the Israelites and for us, and that's that their faithfulness to the commandments of God would determine their fortunes in the land. And they would experience the curses of disobedience or the blessings of obedience. I know that that can be tricky for some of us, especially those of us that are of the Reformed types, and I'm, I'm one of them, but I want you to stick with me here this, this morning. And uh, there's good news uh, in this, and we see God's grace in this. And so we want to look at a few things today that, are, that I hope are going to help us pursue the blessings of obedience. So first of all, we want to look at the location, where they're at. They're in, they're in Shechem. And we want to, first of all, look way back to Abraham in Shechem. Almost 600 years before the event that we read about today, God made a covenant promise to Abraham at this very location. I want you to listen to what he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham builds an altar and he lays claim to this land hundreds of years before Joshua would lead the Israelites into the land. And then we see later on Jacob in Shechem. And Genesis 33 tells us about that. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. He bought the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So Jacob later on builds a well there near Shechem, which we know as Jacob's well. So God guided Abraham's grandson Jacob to Shechem hundreds of years before Joshua and the Israelites would step foot in that land. And not far away from Shechem at Bethel, God would appear to Jacob and he would reaffirm that covenant that he made with Abraham. God said to Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And Jacob, too, built an altar there at Shechem and laid claim to that promised land. And eventually, they would bury the bones of Joseph. 
there at Shechem. And eventually there would be another covenant renewal ceremony like the one we just read about. And you read about that in Joshua 24. And we'll probably eventually get there in this series. And eventually there would be Jesus would speak to the Samaritan woman near this place at Jacob's well. And so we see that God is weaving together this tapestry through space, time, history to carry out his plan and his purpose at a place and in a people. It's so cool to connect all these dots and see that Abraham and Jacob at one time stood in that same place and they looked out over this land and God said, I promise I'm going to give this land to your descendants that will come after you. And then the Israelites that we read about in our text, they they would be able to look back at that and they would see that God was preparing this place for them. And they would see God's commitment to them as a people and God's faithfulness to keep his promises to them. So the location here is significant when we look at the history of Shechem. And secondly, I want us to look at the altar that they built in this place. Before the law was, was written or read, an altar was constructed on Mount Ebal. And that location of Mount Ebal is significant because it is the place that God deemed the mountain of the curse. So why build the altar on the mountain of the curse rather than the mountain of the blessing, Mount Gerizim? Well, the people of Israel needed to know that they would not keep that law perfectly. And when they did sin, when they disobeyed God's commands, and when they worshipped other things, they would need an altar. They would need a place to go. And it was as if God was saying, you shouldn't sin, but when you do, I've provided you a way of escape. I've provided you a way to return to healthy fellowship with God. I want us to look back just a, a little bit further here in Exodus 20. And God gave the Israelites specific instructions concerning the altar. And this is what Exodus 20 tells us. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And Moses followed this same precedent in the instructions that he gave to Joshua. He told them to build an altar of uncut stones upon which no man had wielded an iron tool. The significance of the altar is it's a place where God meets his people through the sacrifice. And this is how the Israelites approached God at the altar. And specifically in our text, we see a couple of ways. One was through the burnt offering. And that represented atonement. The law that they wrote on those stones would expose Israel's sin. They would would see that they haven't kept this law perfectly, and they would see that they had a need for atonement. And the burnt offering that they would put on that altar was the ransom or the payment for their sins. That sacrificial animal that, that died was in their place. It died instead of the offerer removing the guilt of sin and appeasing the just wrath of God. Secondly, 
they gave a peace offering. That was to celebrate their fellowship or to celebrate that they were at peace with God because of the atonement. And it was used to remember and to reaffirm that they had a covenant relationship with their God. God wanted no human mark on that altar because it reminds us that we never approach God on a, on a humanistic level. It's not through the keeping of the law or by any work on our part. It's always through the sacrifice that we approach God. The Apostle Paul seems to think that the Israelites should have learned this lesson from their father Abraham, and he talks about that in Romans chapter 4. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Listen to this. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And so Paul uses an illustration here about work that we can relate to. If salvation were by works, God would just be paying a person what they're due, just like an employer pays you for the hours that you work. But is that really what we want when we understand the gravity of our sin? Or if you believe what Romans tells us, the wages of our sin is death. Do we really want to receive the due reward for our work? So Paul's argument is that Abraham and the Old Testament followers of God approach God exactly as we do, by faith in God's promises and on the basis of the atonement God supplied, in their case, the atonement at the altar. So the altar is significant here in that it's, it's a means for the Israelites to approach God through that sacrifice. Third, we want to look at the writing on the stones. The Israelites were to stack up a bunch of stones and then to plaster them with plaster. It's probably some sort of a, like a white plaster or a light-colored plaster. And this was separate from the altar that was built for the sacrifice. Uh, many Bible scholars and, and commentators think that they probably wrote the Ten Commandments on those stones that they stacked up. And not only were the commandments written, but the entire law of Moses was read to the whole nation that was gathered. Now, a lot of us are probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. If not, you can, you can read about that in Exodus chapter 20. And we don't have time to read through the entire law of Moses this morning, but I want to give you just a sample of what was read at this ceremony. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 15 and 16. This is what they would have heard. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Have you ever worshipped anything other than God? Maybe your career, maybe security, maybe your family, maybe money, maybe comfort, maybe health. I know I have. And then they would go on and would say, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. You ever dishonored your father or your mother? I know I have. And that's probably all that we would have to read for all of us to be condemned and cursed under the law, right? And the Israelites would know why they needed that altar of atonement as they read the words of that law and their sins were exposed. 
So it was clear to them that their spiritual salvation was to be through the way of the altar and not through the work of human hands. And it was clear that the choosing of the Israelites and the Abrahamic covenant as a people for God's possession was entirely a work of God that was irrevocable and unconditional. I want you to listen carefully to this. And this is when God called Abraham and he made the covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who's doing the work? God is, and there's no conditions attached. And yet it seems, as you read through the law of Moses and the Old Testament, there are some conditional aspects. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The blessings and the curses come with a big if, right? So God gave the Israelites commandments that represented His nature and His character, and it was to help them to reflect God's nature and character. And these laws were the eternal law of God that governed the universe. And we saw this at work in the sermon last week. No doubt that experience of Ai that we talked about last week was fresh in the minds of the Israelites. And we saw with, with Achan that when he sinned, judgment came upon the Israelites. And it was only after that sin was judged, that the blessing of God flowed again. I want to be clear. God was not going to turn away from the Jews. That was unconditional. That covenant promise was unconditional. But the writing on the stones and, and the reading of the law serves as a reminder to the Israelites that how they lived in light of God's commands determined their fortunes in the land. It was conditional. Theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer says, says this, We must remember that God's commands are His propositional statements about His character. They are not arbitrary. God has a character, and His character is the law of the universe. Listen, the law is grace in that it reveals what the fulfilling of His character is. God was telling the people that if they lived in the light of His character, then would come the blessing. If they failed to do this, then it would stop. And this truth comes to bear as you watch the Israelites live in the land. We see over and over and over the people, they failed to keep God's law. And he removed the conditional blessings. All you have to do is read through the book of, of Judges and you'll hear it over and over again. The people of Israel, again. It al you almost want to roll your eyes, right? Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because you hear it over and over, and over. And it says, the Lord gave them into the hand of 
the Midianites, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and you could go on and on and on and on because it happened again and again and again. And yet God continually delivered them, and He returned them to the land, and He blessed them, just showing that His unconditional promise stands. See, the Israelites have been given a gift, right? Namely, God Almighty, the Creator of the universe. And through that written law, God gave them an understanding of His nature and His character. When people buck against the character of God, it's not only sinful, it's foolish and destructive, and they found that out. I'll take you back to when we first started this study in Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, when Joshua is being called to lead Israel. And God gives him these instructions. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. See, the conditional promise required that they make a choice to obey God's commands. And so the writing on the stones and the reading of the law reminds us of God's unconditional promise and His faithfulness. Just like Abraham, their salvation was through faith in the one true God who alone could make them righteous. It also reminds us that the blessing that they re received in that promised land depended upon how they lived in light of God's commands. And so we've talked about the importance of the location, Shechem, where they're at, the, the altar, the writing on the stones, and Finally, we want to focus our attention to the ark of God, and I promise you there's good news in this. I know that this is heavy. There's some practical application for us here as we look at the ark of God, and we see God's grace for us. So remember, we have half of the tribes of Israel on, on Mount Ebal to the north, right? And half of the tribes are on Mount Gerizim to the south. And in the middle of that, Stands the priests with the Ark of God. The Ark of God is the centerpiece of this ceremony. The Ark of God was the place of God's presence. When the Israelites were constructing all the articles for the, for the tabernacle, God told Moses concerning the Ark of God. He said, it is there that I will meet with you. It is there that I will speak with you at the ark. And so when you think about this, this idea of, of God's presence, it's really a, a mind-blowing idea. The, the God of the universe isn't constrained by any created parameters, right? Time and space don't hold Him like it, like it does us. And yet, the Bible tells us that God is present everywhere, always, and yet he willingly binds himself in time and space to a location and to a time, in this case, to Shechem and to a box called an ark. And he bound himself to his chosen people. That should blow our minds. Who, who are we, God, that you would be mindful of us, that you would be concerned about us. And the psalmist writes about this in Psalm 113. He says, The Lord is high above all the nations, and His glory above the heavens. 
Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? When I hear, when I read a verse like that, or I hear a verse like that, I, I just want to worship. I think, who, are, who, who am I, God? Who are we? That you'd be concerned about us, that you would make your presence known among us. What a God that we serve, that he'd willingly constrain himself to stoop down to us, to place his presence among a sinful, disobedient, rebellious people like the Israelites, and like me, and like you. And in fact, Philippians 2 tells us he stooped as low as death. Speaking of Jesus, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're talking about the blessings of obedience today. The highest expression of obedience that the world has ever seen or ever will see is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the ark reminds us of Jesus because it's through Jesus that God stooped down to us. So the scripture calls him Emmanuel. God is with us. His presence is among us. And because of the work of Jesus, we are then empowered to obey. I want to encourage us to, to, to think and to live in what Francis Schaeffer calls a conditional as well as an unconditional framework. And here's what I mean by that. For those who have faith in Jesus, the promise of salvation is, is unconditional. When we become Christians by grace through faith in Jesus' work on our behalf, we enter into this spiritual portion of the Abrahamic covenant. And nothing and no one can take that from you. Just like the Israelites had burnt offerings as a, as a means of atonement, Jesus is the sacrifice that stands in our place, removing the guilt of sin and appeasing the just wrath of God. Jesus gives us hope in John 10 when he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once we're sure of this, we must be careful, though, that we don't set aside or dismiss the conditional commandments of God. I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not talking about us keeping the Old Testament sacrificial and, and cleanliness laws. Jesus did away with those things by becoming the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. But the moral law of God shows us God's character. And so the Old Testament sayings about loving your neighbor, caring for the less fortunate, generosity, our relationships, a godly sex ethic, family commitment, respect for life, social relationships, all those things are still for us today. All these things allow us to, to reflect the character of God, and it gives us hope as we live out of relationship with our Heavenly Father. Indeed, obedience affects our good success in the land. It's, it's faith in action as we obey God. 
But obedience that brings glory to God is only possible through a union with Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus, Scripture tells us that for those who put their faith in Him, in Galatians 2, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is not my life to live. We share in the benefits of Jesus' sacrificial death. We were crucified with Christ, it says, and because He rose to new life, we too rise to new life in Him. We're made spiritually alive and we're empowered to obey God. We see this as we look further in in Philippians 2 in the product of Jesus Christ's obedient sacrifice and humbling Himself. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see, God has empowered us even with the will to obey. Obedience is important because we're empowered by Christ for it and because God delights in it. God delights in our obedience. Why? Because the glory of His name is paramount. The verse from Philippians 2 that we we just read told us that God empowers our will. Why? For His good pleasure, it says. Or you could say, for the glory of His name, because that's what His good pleasure is. It's the magnifying of His name. 1 Samuel 15, 22 asks the question, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Of course, the answer is no. We were made in the image of God and thus were made to reflect the nature and the character of God that the law teaches us. If God's nature and character are reflected in His commands, then we're made to obey them. God's commands are are such that they lead to the blessing and the satisfaction of the one who obeys them. And when we obey, we're, we're fulfilling God's purpose for which He made us, namely to Be an image bearer, which in turn brings glory to God. As we magnify God, we're tapping into the greatest and the only source of everlasting joy and fulfillment. And so to glorify God in our obedience means that we're really aiming for our greatest pleasure. It makes sense then that that we would seek to to know God's commands and to to do them with all of our strength. And in doing so, we we get to see the delight of God. We get to know Him. We get to know His presence. We get to reflect His character. and, And we get the everlasting joy. So God delights in our keeping His commands, but He also delights in our confession when we don't keep them. Look back at the lesson from last week. This verse blows my mind. Joshua 7.19, after Achan has sinned and the Israelites have been judged, then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to Him and tell now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. He's saying, confess for the glory of God, for the praise of God. And when we do, John has good news for us. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession draws 
attention to the faithful and the just character of our God. And we demonstrate obedience in our confession, thus bringing glory to God. And finally, our pursuit of obedience reminds us of our need for community. And it's no mistake that that Joshua highlights a number of times in our text that the whole nation was present. That's significant. The men, women, children, sojourners who lived with them in the land, everybody was there because knowing and keeping God's commandments necessitates life in a community. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 speaks to this and says, let, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are no one another's if you're a lone ranger, if you're walking the walk all by yourself. I want us to stop here just for a moment. I'm not just saying you need community. I'm saying we need you too. I'm saying we need each other if we're going to grow in this together. The covenant renewal reminds us of of the need to to gather together often and to renew our commitment to our God and to His commands for us. That's why we gather here on a Sunday. That's why we have crowded houses. That's why we have DNA groups to provide us opportunities to gather with one another and encourage one another. I want us to be a people that reminds one another often of God's good commands. I want us to be a people of God's Word May our hearts be like what the psalmist expresses in Psalm 119. I want this to be me. I want this to be us. And he says, my soul is consumed with longing for your ordinances at all times. I want that to be us, that we're consumed with longing for God's good commands at all times and obeying them. Remember back in Joshua 1.8 before entering the promised land where God tells Joshua and the Israelites to remember the words of the law and to do them. And if, they would be, and if they did, they would be prosperous and have good success in the land. And I want you to listen to how similar that is to Jesus when he's closing out the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and You can read about that in Matthew 6 and and 7. But the Sermon on the Mount is filled with Jesus' instructions for how we should live, how we should treat one another. And as he's closing out that sermon, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. See, successful building depends, first of all, on hearing Jesus' words, 
And when we hear those words and we say yes and amen, those, those are the words of, of our Lord. Then what happens? We must do them. We must obey them. I want to conclude with this. It's my hope that you don't hear this as as moralism or prosperity preaching. If you do, I've failed you. The gospel can't be reduced to, to just improving your behavior. And I'm not saying do all these things and, and God's going to give you whatever you want. God's not some, some cosmic Santa Claus. My hope, if you get nothing else out of this, my hope is that we'll be so secure in our salvation in Jesus that it will be our passion and our delight to obey God that we'll read and that we'll learn and that we'll listen closely to His Word, that we'll pursue holiness with all of our might and that we'll kick and scream and claw to find our greatest joy and our ultimate pleasure in Jesus and not be led astray by the idols that the world would offer us, that we really would treasure Jesus above everything that this world sets before us and that we would know That when we disobey, and we will, that we can glorify God in our confession and that He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My hope is that we are a people who are empowered by the work of Jesus and equipped by the Holy Spirit to enjoy, to enjoy, to enjoy the blessings of obedience. God's good commands. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us and how you've demonstrated that to us in stooping so low as to the point of death and Jesus laying down his life so that we can be reconciled to God our Father who created us for the glory of his name. Father, help us that we, are, that we understand that good news fully, Lord, and that we understand the implications of that as we not only know the gospel and impacts our lives, but as we live out that gospel of the good news about Jesus Christ and as it transforms us, Father, as we grow and learn to love your commands and see the goodness of them, Father, and how we can reflect that goodness in your character. Father, as we obey them, I pray that we would be a people that encourages one another to be a people of of the word, to know you through your word and to obey your word because it is our joy to do so. It is our delight to do so, Father. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name.